we've gone from about 2,500 satellites in low Earth orbit um, in 2020, so that's that's like 60 years of doing stuff in space to get to that point. And by the end of this year, we'll be at around 10,000. So it's growing exponentially. It'll get to 100,000 in the next decade quite easily, I think. Um, and we've never dealt with anything like this. I'm Mary Long, and that's Ashley Vance, a writer at Bloomberg and author of the new book, When the Heavens Went on Sale, The Misfits and Geniuses Racing to Put Space Within Reach. Deirdre Willard caught up with Vance to discuss how much failure it takes to get above the Earth's atmosphere, what life is like in outlaw space towns, and how to separate the real players from the hype in the space industry. Quick note, this conversation was recorded before Virgin Orbit announced that it was shutting down. Well, the book's title kind of refers that there's what I would call a sea change in the world of getting to space. You don't need to have a government anymore to have a rocket. You, you just need a lot of money. So what are some of the pros and cons of the current state of space exploration? Well, um, a lot uh, <laughs> on both sides. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, my book really is about this, this moment in time when um, basically for like 60 or 70 years, we had a handful of governments that did most of the things in space. And then we moved to this, this billionaire phase where really SpaceX and Elon Musk um, are kind of the only success stories, uh, you know, writ large. And, and then now this era of, of venture capital. And so the, the major pros are that things are moving much more quickly than they ever have before. The price of, of rockets and getting to space is coming down. Same thing for satellites. They're, they're cheaper and able to do a lot more. And, and as a result, we're sending up exponentially more satellites and, and building this this giant computing infrastructure in low Earth orbit. Um, you know, the downside is is that this is frenetic. It's it's a total change in the power structures of how space has operated. Um, there's going to be some winners and, and losers in all this, and we're not sure how the the losers somewhere like maybe Russia might react. And and you know this technology that we're putting in space is is very powerful. There's a lot of good that comes with it, but also um, you know a number of, of challenges as well. And also potentially a lot of risk for investors in in some of this as well. <laughs> Right. We didn't even get to the business models yet, of which <laughs> <laughs> there's there's many, many, many questions um, as to sort of who's real and, and also what this looks like in the, the long term. Your subtitle for the book, it's Misfits and Geniuses Racing to Put Space Within Reach. I, I am such a sucker for misfits. There's a ton of them in this book. There's a whole house full of them in the Rainbow Mansion. It's kind of this Silicon Valley communal utopia what role did Rainbow Mansion play in the founding of Planet Labs? A huge role, um, and also in the founding of this book. This was kind of the first story that I, I really, um, and group of people that I got, I got interested in. So, you know, their their NASA Ames is is Silicon Valley's NASA center, and and. It had had some bright spots in the past and then fallen on sort of uh, pretty slow times. And then all of a sudden, 
in the early part of the 2000s, it had this this kind of iconoclastic director who came in, Pete Warden, and he, he hired a bunch of 20-somethings to try and, and think of space differently. And, and so there was this group of, of friends that formed. Um, they were all these young space nerds, and, and a number of them lived in this place called the Rainbow Mansion, which was was a commune, like you, you mentioned. I mean, it was a mansion, but it was uh, full of, of people. And... and they would work at NASA by day and then come back to the Rainbow Mansion and discuss their big ideas about what they wanted to do with space. And it was during some of these late night discussions over a, a scotch or a shared meal that they came up with this idea to really rethink how satellites are made. And, and I'm sure we can get into it, but to build this this enormous constellation of imaging satellites that would photograph the Earth in, in ways we'd never thought were possible before. You just mentioned Pete Warden, and you had a quote towards the end of the book. You said, like, if it was a fictional book, that he would sort of be the kind of supervillain mastermind behind all of it. Uh, why is that? Well, Pete Warden has he's one of the older characters in the book and so he's got this long long history he's an astrophysicist by training which seems straightforward enough but he he worked in the he became a general in the air force he worked on the the star wars missile defense shield he worked on a lot of black ops operations um one of his main goals in life was to help push along something called responsive space, which is, is is what the Defense Department has desired for decades. And that's the ability to send, if a war breaks out somewhere like, say, Afghanistan, you, you want to send up a rocket the, the very next day that puts a satellite or a few of them right over Afghanistan to watch everything that's happening all the time. And, and so in that sense, people called him sort of Darth Vader. You know, he'd done the Star Wars thing. He was trying to militarize space. Um, the people he'd hired to NASA, these youngsters were quite opposite. They were idealists. They were, I call them space hippies. They definitely did not want to see space get militarized. But but Pete, um, to his credit, he's, he's just not one of these people who wanted wanted yes yes people around him. Um, you know, he he wanted new ideas and um, and so he he kind of built this environment where these kids could go charge after cheap rockets and, and cheap satellites for their idealistic missions. Uh, I, you know, by the time you get to the end of the book, I just argue that that um, maybe Pete knew what he was doing all along and sort of ended up getting the technology he wanted um, just by pushing this group of, of kids to, to chase after what they thought they wanted. It seems like the space race, it, it attracts a certain type of, of personality. I love the story of Peter Beck. He's this New Zealand guy. He's this kind of mad genius out of nowhere, decides to build rockets, no connections, no training, no experience for a long time, no money. He kind of pulls it off. Rocket Lab's now a major player. What part of that whole story did you find most improbable kind of about his journey? It's hard to know where to start. <laughs> uh, for people who don't know, there's SpaceX, which has launched hundreds of rockets, and then there's Rocket Lab, which is Peter's company. It's launched about 40. After that, the the number drops off pretty quick as far as commercial rocket players go. And so Rocket Lab is the real deal. Um, like you mentioned, New Zealand has no aerospace history at all. They were, they were not a spacefaring nation. They barely have a military, no experience to rely on. 
Peter Beck didn't go to college. He he worked uh, as a apprentice at a, a dishwasher maker, <laughs> and, you know. And so certainly not some like MIT PhD or anything like that. He just happened to be this very driven engineer. Um, he, this this driven sort of hands on kind of guy. He he would make his own propellants um, in a shed outside of his house. His own rocket engines in a shed outside of his house. And so history would tell you this should not work. He should not be able to form a rocket startup. Um, but he, he really does kind of stand alone as the, as the one person who's done this as, as a, as a one person outfit for a while. And then obviously got some venture capital money and built this into a massive multi-billion dollar company. But I think of all the stories in the book, it's just the most unlikely and has to be one of the most unlikely in the last 50 or 60 years. Yeah, I, I just I, that was one of my favorite parts, and I liked it in the in the rocket lab section. He does this thing; he tosses this thing, the humanity star, into space. It's kind of this disco ball. It becomes the brightest object in space until it uh, eventually falls out of orbit and burns up. But it's a good example of the idea that just because we can put something into orbit, maybe we shouldn't. And you also talk in the book a little bit about Leo Labs, which is kind of starting to track space debris. As someone who like looks up at the sky at night, how concerned should we be about this growing issue of space junk and so much being put up into into the lower orbit? Well, this is part of the reason I wrote the book, a large part. You know, the book, I would say, is optimistic overall, I, I, but I wanted people to know we, we've gone from about 2,500 satellites in low Earth orbit um, in 2020. So that's that's like 60 years of doing stuff in space to get to that point. And by the end of this year, we'll be at around 10,000. So it's growing exponentially. It'll get to 100,000 in the next decade quite easily, I think. Um, and... and We've never dealt with anything like this. I mean, that, that 2,500 number you know, barely grew year by year and was quite static. And and so this company, Leo Labs, not only do they track, they, they have this antenna system. They're a startup. They've built unique antennas to see stuff in space. They don't just track the objects. They're already trying to, they already coordinate um, the movement of these things. So uh, SpaceX's satellites will talk to Planet Labs satellites and 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 maneuver out of each other's way and, and Leo Labs helps coordinate all of this. So it's in everybody's best interest to make sure this works, some kind of cascading debris field um, would undermine every bit of, of new business and also things like GPS technology um, and stuff like that. But people should know, you know, the night sky, as you've seen it since you were growing up, is is changing and will change more dramatically. We'll see satellites moving um, all the time. And, and this is, I wanted people to start having this discussion like we are right now and be aware of what's coming because I don't think most people have been paying attention. <laughs> I, I wonder sometimes if the next uh, iteration of space businesses starts to become businesses that clean up the things that, that other businesses have put up there. There already there already are startups trying to do that now. There's some satellite companies they want to put up satellites and then their satellites also have this kind of junk um, clearing sort of ability. And then there's some that are just pure. We want to go up there and and try to try to manage all of this. I mean, the my book is not about tourism. It's not about colonies on Mars. It is about lower Earth orbit, the space right above our heads. It's really presented as this new real estate. Um, and, you know, we sort of know what happens when humans discover 
some new new place, right? It's like we rush in and and there's there's already companies trying to claim their territory and and set up shop and and you just you don't want to rush in um so quickly that it kind of ruins it forever, which is a real concern here. Yeah. Well, speaking of real estate, one of the things about uh this book and and launching rockets in general, you kind of need a lot of room, right? So it seems like you've, you've went everywhere. You went to the wilds of Alaska, New Zealand, obviously, uh, the Mojave Desert, which is sort of like the, the place where all this space stuff is really happening. So give us a little taste of what life is like in these sort of like outlaw space towns. Yeah, I went to French Guiana, Svalbard, India, you name it. Um, <laughs> the the big launch sites tend to be near the equator. Uh, the the Earth spins faster at the equator, so it gives it the rockets a bit of boost, so they can carry more stuff. Um, obviously, it tends to be by the water, so if they blow up, people and objects don't get hurt. Um, but as a result, you also end up in, in places that are, are tend to be, frankly, quite poor and remote and, and, and exotic. And so it was, it was just unlike what I, I'm not a space geek by nature. It was totally unlike whatever impressions I had in my head, which was like, you're going to the most, you know, sci-fi, high tech, clean sort of facility imaginable. Usually I would go in, you know, like in India, there were, there's kind of goats and monkeys and all sorts of animals just cruising around the rocket launch sites. Um, the, the buildings look like and are from sort of like the 1970s. Um, part of it's a reflection that this space boom that happened in the 50s and 60s, things got stuck. It just didn't change much after that. And then part of it is just a reflection of where these things end up. You just, you don't put like a rocket launch site in the middle of Los Angeles for obvious reasons. <laughs> Yeah, definitely not. Well, the story of Astra in the book, uh, to my mind, it kind of illustrates how much failure is involved in getting things into space. Because you've got Chris Kemp. He's this kind of charismatic, brilliant, maybe a little bit of a wild man. He's pushing this team really hard, and these rockets just keep failing over and over again. And you called going public for, for, uh, for both Kemp and for Astra kind of this Faustian bargain. So I want to know, why was that true? Is it still true? And with everything that's going on with Astra now and what just happened with Virgin Orbit, what, what do you think is next for, for Astra? Yeah, it's this incredible time. Even SpaceX is still private, which is a reflection of, of the traditions in this industry. We have not seen public space companies until the SPAC craze of, of what, like 2021, I think was, was kind of the peak, peak SPACness. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, there was all this, there was all this cheap money. So the Faustian bargain was, was look, we need money. We could get hundreds of millions of dollars. SPACs were amazing because the regulations are a little flimsier around them. So you could, you could promise all kinds of incredible things about how often you're going to launch and, and all this stuff without, without getting into too much trouble. And, and so it was this, huge opportunity for these companies. I argue in the book, and I think this is very true, is that most investors barely understand the commercial space economy and like the average retail investor definitely does not really understand still kind of how hard this is and and the mechanics of it. So a company like Astra is public, so now they have to start doing what used to be private, hidden launches right out in the open. And there is no more 
binary product launch than than flying an explosive into the air and it either gets to space or it blows up this is not like some uh, software product that you put out there and, and get months to see if it gets some kind of adoption and so you see these companies stock prices just oscillating up and down um based on these launches and um you know i, th I think virgin orbit recently filed for bankruptcy although there's rumors that they're kind of making a comeback but i think we're we saw this huge initial wave, um, particularly there were a lot of, you know, rockets kind of come in, in small, medium and large. And we got inundated with small rocket companies that really um, were not that different from each other. So I, I think we're going to see kind of a clean out of a lot of those because we probably only need a couple. Um, and then. I really think so. I think we're going to see like a bit of a pullback. But then I, I think, as I argue in the book, um, this is not like a failed experiment. Commercial space is going to happen. And so I think we just see a second wave of new players who really try to learn lessons from what came before. And, and the industry has matured where a rocket company that started today would not have to make all of its own engines. There's there's engine companies, you know, there's different suppliers now. And so it's it's already sort of a new regime if you want a second crack at this. Well, I have to ask you about your adventures with Max Polyakov because, uh, you know, he's the man who rescued and really rebirthed fly Firefly Aerospace. But in a book full of, as we've seen, really colorful characters, he might just be the most colorful and maybe controversial. So is he the Ukrainian Elon Musk or something else entirely? I guess he's close to that or he's on the verge of it, you know, so but Max is he, he grew up at the as the Soviet empire was kind of collapsing his parents had worked on the soviet space program he was he was an OBGYN coming out of university and then turned into this this software multimillionaire. and yeah to your point he he bought uh firefly it was a, a small rocket maker in texas that went bankrupt max came in he is like elon musk and jeff bezos in the sense that he put 250 million dollars into to firefly which which it's very hard to find another you know individual that's put anything close to that into a rocket company um the story of max is it's like part comedy part tragedy i think um you, right as firefly starts to become successful the u.s government begins to raise all of these these questions um which i thought were quite flimsy really i mean the the u.s government's basic contention is that he's ukrainian and Ukraine is close to Russia and that he might one day become a Russian asset and, and funnel um, American aerospace technology to Russia. I, I've, if this is true, he is the most extraordinary undercover agent I've ever seen because, you know, he's been funding the Ukrainian war effort since since the war began and um, and seems to hate Russia with a passion. But, yeah, so, this you know, I... I had this bizarre opportunity to live through all of this with Max, with him him trying to build this company, with the U.S. basically throwing him out of the company and out of the country and going to Ukraine with him and, and the whole thing. And then he sort of has, like, picked up his marbles, and now he's in Scotland, right? He is. He's in Scotland. He's, you know, he's sort of, he, he had all these business software and online um, business ventures that he's he's refocused on. He owns a satellite company in South Africa. I mean, he still has space in his blood, and I, I don't think we've seen the last of, of Max Poyakov in space. We, we were already talking about some of these 
rocket companies that are struggling. Um, I'll be curious to see if Max swoops in and takes a second crack at this. What you just said there is, is true about when space gets in your blood, because that's that's sort of what what comes through in the book, and it. You know, it's come through with the with the billionaires. Your book isn't about the the space tourism race, but I, I kind of got to ask you because you have such insight on all of them in this billionaire space race with Bezos, Musk, Richard Branson still is kind of in there. If this were a horse race, you could only bet on one of them. Who would you put your money on? Put everything I possibly could obtain on Elon. I mean, you know, <laughs> SpaceX is 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 running laps around not only their rivals but entire nations. Branson's companies, you know, are, are barely existing, and and Blue Origin has had some wins with space tourism, but has been trying to send satellites into orbit pretty much as long as SpaceX has and has never sent one. And, and SpaceX is sending them up by the thousands per year and, and launching rockets almost every day. And so, yeah, no, that would be, uh, you could feasibly bet on, it depends, you know, on your uh, time horizon. If, if <laughs> you could, you could get into Blue Origin now and maybe, maybe have um, some surprise wins. Well, one of one of my colleagues uh, wanted me to ask this. So in 2018, you did an interview uh, with, with us at The Fool, and you said that SpaceX was Musk's baby, that Tesla was kind of foisted on him. Now he's got Twitter, and he's sort of actively said that that has definitely been foisted on him, too. He felt like he had to buy it. So he's got those companies. He's got certainly some other companies as well. He's kind of all over the place. How do you see him splitting his focus and how important do you think, looking back between 2018 and now, how important do you think SpaceX is to him? Has that shifted over time? I think it's still his baby in his heart. I've been shocked to see how all-consuming Twitter has been. I guess he saw it as as in this emergency state where it was burning through cash and he had to be very hands-on to deal with that and, and deal with all the debt and, and these payments. Um it's a little sad to me in some ways. I, I just don't think it's the best use of his time. Um, I think SpaceX has accomplished so much and is still just starting this new chapter with Starship, an even bigger rocket that actually can get to Mars and take a lot of stuff and people there, which has really been his life's goal. So, um, you know, I think he's torn at the moment, if I'm honest. I, I think SpaceX also operates quite well without his day-to-day -day involvement. Um, he seems to be extremely concerned about AI technology as well. And so I just wonder if we're entering, this is something I never saw coming. I really thought this guy who had his finger in so many pies would try to pare things down over time to just concentrate on SpaceX. And we're obviously going in the opposite direction <laughs> right now. Um, so I, I, I don't know for sure how this plays out. Yeah. Well, overall in the book, one of the sort of takeaways for me is about how much failure is involved. Uh, you know, we talked about Astra, uh, certainly Firefly has gone up and down. With all of these launches and, and so much money being spent and so many failures, do you think that over time we get better and better at this and there are fewer failures? Because right now it, it hasn't quite seemed like that. Like things will get a little better and then there'll be a rash of failures and then it seems like everybody goes back and, and iterates. What do you kind of see? Uh, how, how, how is the failure rate going to go? It's still very difficult. It's that, it's that first 
getting the first rocket is very hard and then getting some kind of repeatability is very hard. Um, but if you step back for a second, we do have just massive uh, leaps forward for it used to be all the space programs were really government run to some degree and 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 the best really launched maybe once a month over the course of a year i mean that was that was success spacex currently is on a pace for about once every 2 days and probably could get to almost once a day if it wanted to um it's sending it sent 38 people up over the last two and a half years from from nothing rocket lab launches can launch about once every week and is trying to get to once every three or so days and and has three rocket pads at its disposal now so um yes you know some of these other companies are at an earlier stage but when we look at, at spacex and rocket lab as the two kind of premier commercial space players it's a totally new regime than than what happened before um so it's still very hard but definitely does not even to make a go at this before you did have to be a nation state you did have to have thousands of people billions of dollars and so now you know much much smaller teams and much less capital required to to give this a shot and and we're gonna see just this year i mean there's about i think 10 on the order between five and ten rocket startups that are launching for the first time so so this is from like you know nothing 15 years ago to 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 quite a number of players as always people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about and the motley fool may have formal recommendations for or against so don't buy stocks based solely on what you hear i'm mary long Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.